That's awesome news. Thank you guys so much for your generosity as the Garner Campus Pastor. You guys are amazing. So we're set up to go and uh, start a church in that city in September. Uh, well, if you're new here, my name's Chase. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to see everyone. We got a lot of work to do. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. A few of you have actual Bibles. That warms my heart. I love seeing that. Uh, if you have to use the table of contents to find it, that's okay. No one's going to judge you. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we'd love to give you one at the Next Steps area. All you guys got apps anyway, so go ahead and click on over to Philippians chapter 2. And as you're turning there, clicking there, let me just say happy Mother's Day weekend. I hope all of you moms and moms-to-be feel loved and honored this weekend. And I'm just going to tell you from the very beginning that I am not preaching a sermon on moms or on motherhood, but this might work out in your favor because uh, we're continuing our series that we're calling Help Us, which is a relationship series where we're looking at the one another's in the Bible, and we're looking at the word prefer today, as in prefer others or put other people's needs or desires before your own. So I'm thinking that as you and your family leave church this weekend, this prefer others will be fresh on their minds, the church guilt will be fresh in their hearts, and they might just scoot on over to the closest store and pick up a few more uh, presents in preference of you. So this might end up being the best Mother's Day ever. We'll see if it turns out that way. But uh, this is an interesting one another, this prefer one another. And at first glance, it is a weird one another. And I know that because people ask me, hey, Chase, what are you preaching on this weekend? And I said, prefer one another. Like, that, that's just interesting. I don't understand that. Like, we understand uh, uh, some sort of preference. Like, I prefer salty over sweet. That's just me. We understand that. Uh, I prefer dogs over cats. That's just me and every sane person on the planet, you know. But I prefer three-ply over one-ply, right? you got to treat yourself. Like, we, we understand that sort of preference. But what does prefer one another mean? Are we supposed to rank people in order of preference? What does the Bible talk about when it commands us to prefer one another? Like in Romans 12, 10, it says this, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Uh, give preference to one another in honor. Or the good old King Jimmy, the King James Version, this is how I grew up hearing it. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love in honor, preferring one another. That's how I grew up hearing it. So this term prefer, it doesn't mean that we rank people and treat them uh, according to how they land in our brackets. I'm going to unpack what this means in a second. But when I was preparing for this sermon, it kind of dawned on me, this is a little bit countercultural. Uh, this word prefer is a, liter is, is a little bit controversial. And you're like, prefer, how was that controversial? Well, the first week we talked about accepting one another. And I think our culture is behind that 100%. They can get behind that. It's one of those areas where our culture and God's word kind of lines up because of common grace. And it's awesome when that happens. Uh, the second week, we talked about forgiveness, which is a little bit harder. Um, but I think our culture is still behind it. I think they understand how holding on to things, that can be damaging. Uh, forgiving yourself is a big topic nowadays. But preferring others is a little bit different. You know, a synonym to prefer is privilege. Privilege others above yourselves. And privilege is a curse word nowadays, isn't it? Economic privilege, white privilege, cisgender privilege. If you don't know what that means, I mean, don't look it up, but if you, that's fine. Uh, but privilege is like a curse word nowadays. In, in today's world, we're told, and for good or for bad, I'm not saying this is right or wrong, but we're told the way forward as a culture is not to prefer others as better than yourselves, but to fight for your own personal rights, to actually take power and influence away from people. 
So our culture says that we're supposed to do whatever it takes to make sure that no one is privileged or preferred, right? Down with the patriarchy, down with capitalism, down with anything that would seem to prefer others. And so I want to give my political stance. No, I'm just kidding. I do not want to do that. But our culture is, is, is sort of opposed to any sort of preference. And so I think as I was preparing this, I'm convinced that this command to prefer one another, it's one of the most powerful one another's precisely because it is so countercultural. It's so different that when we live this out, the watching world takes notice. And I think that if we as individuals learn to embrace a lifestyle of preferring others, of considering others as better than ourselves, there's really no limit to what God can do in our relationships, yes, but also in our communities and in our churches and in our cities and in our world. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. So first we have to understand what this command actually means. So let's read Philippians chapter 2 verses one through eight together. Uh, This is Paul writing to one of his favorite churches. Paul's come down on some hard times. He's been in jail. And the church that meets in the city of Philippi has been right there beside him, writing him letters, encouraging him. Um, Paul loves this church, not just because they're kind and remember him, but also because this church is living out the mission that Paul commanded them to do. They are making an impact in their city right and left. Uh, But a disagreement has come up uh, between two members of that church. You can read about it in chapter four, Euodia and Syndike. And that disagreement has gotten them off track. It's distracted them from the mission that Paul wants for them. So he writes this for them to get back on track. And this is what he says. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now I wanna zero in on the main command here first. It's found in verses three and four. We're gonna take this text apart differently. We're gonna jump around a little bit. But the command's found in verse three. It says this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. So that's the one command. This is the thought that, that Paul carries through the rest of the text. And it's not that hard to understand. It's pretty easy. Treat others as more important than yourself. That's what he's basically saying. Act like he or she is more important than you. Make decisions as if you really believe the other person is more important than you. So what you're doing for your mother during this weekend, on Mother's Day weekend, do that for everyone in every circumstance all the time. So think back to the last time you were around someone that was more important than you. And some people are like, never. I've never been around someone more important than you. You have been. We all have been. And some of you are thinking, are you saying that some people have more intrinsic worth or value than others? That's, that's not what Paul's getting at here. Paul wants you to think back to a time where you were around someone where in that particular context, they were more important than you. Like as a pastor, I do weddings all the time. 
And I've noticed uh, that during the reception at a wedding, people will wait in line for an hour just to hug or to say congratulations to the bride and groom. They don't do that for me. They always sit the pastor next to some crazy aunt and uncle twice removed that no one wants to sit next to. I'm not the most important person in that room. Or uh, think back to the last wedding you went to. Uh, When the bride entered the room, what did everyone do? They stood. When you walked in, no one cared, right? Because in that, in that moment, you were not the most important person. And we've all been in rooms where uh, that was the case. We've been to sports games where there's famous athletes there and we're not the most important. We've been to office parties where the president's there, in my case, the founding pastor, and they're the most important person in that room. And in these sorts of situations, we just instinctively or naturally know how to treat the other person, don't we? We put their needs ahead of our own. We let them go first through the dinner line. We make sure they have everything that they need. We put them before ourselves. We don't interrupt them. You don't correct them. You don't fight for your own way. You don't do any of that. Instead, you sort of make a decision and you say, I'm gonna treat you as if you were more important than me, as if you have more value than me. After all, it's your wedding day or this is your office party. You're the president. And that's the key. This is a decision. You see, it's true, we're all equally important in God's eyes. Every human being has equal worth and intrinsic value before God, but as Christ followers, we're supposed to choose to treat other people as if they are more important, as if they have more worth than us. I love meeting couples that have just started dating. Not engaged and certainly not married when this sort of preference kind of slacks off a little bit. But think about how you treated your husband and wife when you first began to date, when you first met. One of the most romantic things I ever did for my wife, and get ready, this is going to be awe-inspiring. But one of the most romantic things, and my wife says this, not me. After one or two dates, after we'd been dating for like a week or two, she came into the restaurant where I was a waiter. And listen, be amazed. She ordered a salad and I paid for it. Be in awe. Yes. And she remembers that to this day. I think it's because I didn't have much money at the time. She paid for the first 150 dates we went on. So maybe that's why she was so impressed. But at the beginning, I just naturally did stuff like that. I just naturally preferred her. Now, I'm like, you want chicken on that salad? That's on you. Like, you're going to have to pay for that. But in the beginning, it was a natural thing. We know how to do this. Couples that have stayed in love for 20 or 30 or 40 years, what I've noticed is they just keep doing that. That's the secret. Year after year, no matter if the other person deserves it or not, they intentionally prefer the other person. They consider their spouse as better than themselves. People that have deep and lasting friendships, people that make a difference in their sphere of influence, this is what they do. Over and over and over again, they make the decision to prefer other people. It's a lifestyle that they develop. And at this point, I can see some of your faces and you're like, oh, this is quaint. This is like little house on the prairie stuff. This is cute. This is for a simpler time, but no one does this anymore. Besides the fact that this is extremely countercultural, it's also viewed as a little bit dangerous, as a little bit dumb. Like all of us have been burned by people in the past. And so we hear this and we think that's a great way to get taken advantage of, right? That's, That's not how strong men or strong women act. But if push comes to shove, Chase, and I have to obey this command, if it's really that important, then I will, but only if the other person promises to do the same for me. Like we wanna put an ultimatum in place almost. If you'll jump, I'll jump. If you'll do this, I'll do this. I will prefer you if you promise to prefer me. Otherwise, I'm not so sure if this is gonna work out for me. So there's a little bit of pushback that we have when it comes to this command. And it's at this point where Paul kind of reads our minds. 
And Paul gives us a model to look at, a model to model our lives on. And he turns our attention to Jesus. That's the model. It's not, it's not how your dad loved you or your mom loved you or your grandparents or your roommate in college loved you. We're supposed to approach our relationships the same way that Jesus approached his relationship with us. And so he goes on in verse 5 and he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form, and that means the very essence God, even though he was God, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped. And that word grasp doesn't mean to reach out for, but it means to hold on to. So this is huge. You see, when we're in a relationship, we approach it like there's two people here. So we're both equal. I'm 50% of this thing. So I have certain rights and privileges, same as the other person. So I need to get something out of this. But Paul says, no, no, no. Here's the model. Here's Jesus who is God and yet not one time did he use the God card. He was the most important person in any room that he ever walked into, and yet he's the only person that could demand certain rights and privileges, but he never leveraged that for his own sake. There were no ultimatums in place. No, I'll serve you if you serve me in return. But rather, verse 7, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. You know what our culture says? Our culture says she's full of herself or he's full of himself. But Paul says Jesus emptied himself by taking on the very nature of a servant, by being made in human likeness. And he didn't have to do any of that. So why did he do that? What's he up to? Verse eight, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Did you catch that? He humbled himself. He made a decision. No one else humbled him. He decided to place himself under. He decided to subordinate his will. And who did he humble himself to? To his father's will and to our needs. He knew that we needed our sins to be paid for. He knew that we needed rescuing. And he knew how much it would cost for him to get that for us. He knew it would be painful. He knew it would be emotionally exhausting. He knew he would have to give up everything, even his life. But what did he do? He counted you and he counted me as worthy of that cost. And listen, we were not. We absolutely were not, but he made a decision. And he chose to treat us as if we were worthy. He put our needs above his own and he acted. And Paul says that's the model. Paul says, if you want to do relationships the way that God wants you to do relationships, then in any and every circumstance, in marriage, in parenting, at work, at school, with no ultimatums in place, no I will if you will, consider others as more important than yourselves. Put their needs first and all that you do prefer other people. That's the command and that's the model. You guys understand it? Now go do it. Anybody feel capable of walking out of this building right now and obeying this command? I don't. I fought with my wife last night over which Office episode to rewatch for like the past 50th time, right? I, I, this, isn't, this is all of life. How do I do that? And this isn't just a Mother's Day thing. This isn't prefer one person for a few hours one time a year. This is every single day, all day, every single person you come in contact with, prefer, prefer, prefer in all of life. This is hard stuff. 
You know, when I prepare sermons, what I'll do is I'll spend a few days in the text, kind of marinating in the text, and I'll form a loose sermon outline. And then lastly, after I've written an outline, I'll listen to radically different preachers that are just completely different. And that's what I did this week in preparation for this sermon. And two of those preachers that I listened to stopped right there. They said, here's the command, here's the model, prefer, let's pray. And I was like, have you ever met another human being? Have you ever interacted with a person? They certainly don't have children. I tell my daughters all the time, prefer your sister, serve your sister, be kind to your sister. Guess what? They don't do that. I know intellectually that this is how I'm supposed to treat my wife and my neighbors and my staff here, but a lot of the times I don't. Left on my own, this command isn't just hard, it is impossible. Why is that? Why is it so hard to prefer other people? Why does this seem so out of reach? Well, Paul, in God's grace and mercy, in a very profound way, helps us understand why this is so hard, why oftentimes this is just out of our reach. And he also shows us how obeying this command is a possibility. And this is so key. If you miss this, you miss everything. And it's in verse 1. Go back to verse 1. We skipped it. This is what it says. So if there is any encouragement in Christ. All right, break. If you're a Bible dork, you'll love this. If not, you can zone out for a second. But um, in the Greek, which is what the New Testament is written in, this is what we call an if-then statement. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, if this, if this, then make my joy complete. It's what we call a condition. And it's in the Greek, it's a first-class condition, which means the assumed answer is yes. Paul wants us to be shouting back, duh. So instead of that if there, you can write because of. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, and there absolutely is, because there is comfort from love, if there's any participation in the Spirit, and there is, if there's any affection, if there's any sympathy, and there is, then because of this, based on this, out of this foundation, you're free to go and prefer others. And here's what Paul is doing, and it's so powerful. Now you got to bear with me. we got to go back to Genesis just for a second. We'll jump back to Philippians. Um, but in Genesis, we learn, especially in the Old Testament, that we, as human beings, and don't take offense to this, but we as human beings are needy people. And some of your wives are like, amen. You know my wife called me needy today? I'm like, that's in my sermon. You guys can pray for it. Uh, but it just proved my point. And it's true. The Hebrew word used to describe humans most often in the Old Testament is the Hebrew word nephesh. Everyone say nephesh. You might be pronouncing it wrong because I might be, I don't know, but that's the Hebrew word. But literally translated, it means needy or wanty. That's how the Bible describes us. You see, when God first created us, he didn't create us because he was bored, because God doesn't have any needs. But the picture that Genesis gives us is the, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were, were chilling for all of eternity. And they were looking around, and there was love, and there was adoration, and there was joy. And there was something called existence. And at some point in eternity past, God looked at Jesus, and God the Father looked at the Spirit and said, this is too good not to share. we got to share this joy and happiness with something. So he created us as beings uh, through which he can, he can pour joy into. I don't know if you've ever thought of it like that, but you were created to be delighted. You were created to be, I almost said bedazzled, to be dazzled, not be bedazzled. So you, you get what I'm saying. You were created for God to pour his joy into you, to, to fill you up to the brim. So if you were gonna create something that was, uh, its purpose was meant to be poured into, what sort of thing would you create? A cup, 
or a bowl or a bucket. You guys got it. And, and that's, that's how God created us, with a deep space, a deep need or deep desires inside of our hearts, figuratively speaking, so that he could fill that up with joy. And it worked out really well. This God pouring his joy into us for the first two chapters of the Bible. We have Adam and Eve waking up with these intense longings, these intense needs and desires, and going to God and God fulfilling that need. And they go to sleep. And they wake up the next morning and they just rinse and repeat again and again and again. But at some point, Adam and Eve looked at God and they said, God, we're pretty sure you're holding out on us. We're pretty sure there's something better out there that we can actually figure out on our own how to meet these deep desires and these deep needs. And they left God's presence and they struck out on their own. And since then, every human being has sort of followed that trail that Adam and Eve blazed. And so the picture that the Bible paints of humanity after the fall, Genesis chapter 3, all the way up until now, is of a people on a desperate and never-ending search to fill that void. And all that we think about and all that we do and all that we pursue is really just an attempt to meet those deep needs. But what we found after thousands of years of human history is that there is no created thing and certainly no created person that can ever meet those needs. God gives us a beautiful metaphor in Jeremiah chapter two. I encourage you to go read it after you leave here. But in Jeremiah two, God says, my people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me the river of life. So picture this mighty flowing river behind me on stage, crystal clear, filled with water. He said, it says, my people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the river of life, and they've begun to dig for themselves wells, broken wells that can hold no water. And the picture is of a thirsty people, of a hungry people, and all that they need to be satisfied is right there, found in God. But the human predicament is that we've turned our back on God, and instead of drinking from that river, instead we get down on our hands and knees in the desert sand, and we dig, and we dig, and we dig, and we sweat, and our muscles ache, and our hands bleed, and we finally get down to a little thimble full of tepid, dirty table water, and we take a sip, and it meets, it slakes our thirst for a second. And then we have to dig and we have to dig and we have to dig. And we're always searching and we're never finding. And that's you and that's me. And oftentimes, most of the time, I think, we look to other people to meet those needs. You see, we still have those needs, needs like love. We need another person, another being to know us fully with all of our flaws and all of our failures and to love and to accept us. And that might be touchy-feely, guys, I know, but you dream of affirmation at work, don't you? That's a form of love. We have a deep need to belong, to not be judged and ostracized, but be a part of a community or a family. Think back to some of your fashion blunders in middle school. You look like an idiot most days. We all did. Why? Because we wanted to be accepted. We wanted to, be, to fit in. Uh, we need comfort, especially in a broken world. We need to know that it's all gonna work out okay eventually. We need affection. These are, these are deep needs that must be met. And what Paul is pointing out here is that there is no hope of putting other people's needs ahead of your own until those deep needs that you have are met. It's like in the airplane safety talk or in the brochure, because you probably have your headphones on during that, but when the oxygen masks go down, you're supposed to put it over your mouth as a parent until uh, before you help your kids because um, you're no good to them until your own needs are met. And what Paul is saying here is that, Christian, Christ follower, your needs have been met 
in Christ. He's saying in Christ, the search is over. Depending on other people to fill those needs is over because in Christ, you have encouragement. In Christ, you have the comfort that you need. In Christ, you have love. You belong. There's a participation with the Spirit. In Christ, you have sympathy. You have affection. And so as Christ followers, we have this deep and abiding well that we can drink from whenever we want so that we are free to go and offer that drink to other people. We, as Christians, we don't depend on other people, on spouses or friends or celebrities or athletes or bosses to meet those needs. Those needs are met in Christ. And I would say that if if you're not a Christ follower here, and you're in church this week and you're kind of kicking the tires of Christianity, this is probably why joy seems so elusive in your life. This is why all the stuff that you tried, it seems to have a glass ceiling, this much joy and no more. How, this is why everything has a law of diminishing returns because nothing on earth, nothing that you're chasing after was ever meant to be your source. Only God can be the source. And here's what I see play out again and again in counseling conversations that I have. Until you learn to depend on God and God alone to meet those needs, the people in your life will either be obstacles or they'll be disappointments. The people in your life will either stand in the way of you finding joy and you have to push them aside or they will disappoint you with the amount of joy that they can give you. And I see this all the time. Husbands who leave their wives because their current wives just don't cut it anymore. They're disappointing them. So they found a new woman and now their wife is just getting in the way. So they push them aside only to be disappointed in that new woman eventually. Or a coworker who you thought was your friend and you just found out in another, they're spreading gossip and lies behind your back. Why would they do that? It's because you're in the way of something they want like affirmation or recognition and they gotta get you out of the way. Where I found men and women who are so angry and frustrated with their spouses because they are relying on that spouse to meet all of their needs. And listen, your spouse is not up to that task. We all know the romantic husband or the romantic wife that subconsciously expects their spouse to complete them, to meet their needs, and that is a weight that they were never meant to bear. Only God can fully and finally satisfy. You see, we often try to get from other people what only God can give to us. And that's why preferring is so hard and fighting is just a lot easier or going after our own needs comes second nature. James 4, verses one through two says it so plainly. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, and that's why you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. But then he says, you have not because you do not ask God. If you read the next few verses, it's because God can give that to you. And so when I find that I'm having relational turmoil in my life, when I find that I'm just angry at this person or frustrated with this person, I've gotten in the habit of asking myself questions like, what do I need from this person that I'm expecting them to give me? oh, that's why I'm angry at them. Or what do I need that this person is getting in the way of? That's, that's exactly why I'm angry with them. And then I ask, how can I go to Jesus for that need instead? Or how has Christ already met that need? And those sorts of questions have helped me think through this stuff. And we see this in the life of Jesus. We see the, his needs being met in the Father. Uh, 
that, that's what freed him up to prefer us. There's a reason that when Jesus' ministry kicks off, it's during his baptism. And there's a reason his father speaks audibly from heaven. What does he say? This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased because the human side of Christ needed that affection and affirmation. We see Jesus constantly getting alone in prayer with the Father just to be near him, to receive comfort and encouragement, to have those needs met. Jesus tapped into this power source, and we see the result, don't we? In any and every circumstance, he put our needs above his own. So until you rely on God to meet your needs, people will either be obstacles or disappointments, but when your needs are met in God, that's when you're free to serve. When you feel that need met, when you realize that, it's like a switch just happens and you're like, oh, they're not here for me. I'm here for them. Jesus is here for me so I can be there for them. And there's freedom in that. And that's the picture that Paul's giving us, a group of people who are going to Jesus regularly to meet their needs, who are remembering and rehearsing and rejoicing that their deepest needs are already been met in Christ. And in that freedom, they go back out into the world to meet the needs of others. Now, this will change the way that you love your spouse. When you get up early and you go to Jesus and his word and his love, and then you go to your spouse full, ready to overflow into their life, this will change the way that you interact with your college roommates or family members or coworkers. But after studying these verses, it's way more powerful than that. It goes beyond our day-to-day relationships and friendships, and it actually moves into the realm of our neighborhoods and our cities and our world. And I didn't notice this until this week, but as I was studying this text, have you ever heard of taking a verse out of context? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Bad, don't do that. Well, taking this verse out of context would be to limit this just to marriage or just to relationships. Let's look at what the context actually is. Look at the paragraph right above this, Philippians 1, verses 27. It says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your your opponents. What's the context here? It's a church on mission. Look at the paragraph right under this, 2:14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine like stars or as lights, holding fast to the word of life. A church on mission. That's the context here. So Paul says that this sort of preferring This sort of loving, this is how God changes the world, not just your marriage or not just your friendships. What Paul's saying in context here is that if you want to unlock the power of God in your church, Philippians, if you want to continue to be a church on mission to reach more and more people with the gospel, then this is how you do it. You realize that your needs as a church have been met in Christ, and then you put the needs of your city before those. And so Paul's basically saying to us as Hope Community Church, if you want to reach the triangle, this is how you do it. You go to God to meet your needs, and then you put your needs, uh, your needs behind the needs of the city. We become a church that says we don't need the fanciest buildings. 
We can set up and tear down in a high school. That's fine because we want more people to hear and respond to the gospel. We have a congregation where the people say, this isn't my free time. This is free time that God has given me. So I'm gonna spend it investing in tutoring a student or in pouring into a small group or I have some extra finances and I could use that for an extra vacation, but I'm gonna put the, the needs of the city of hearing the gospel above that. I'm gonna invest that into the kingdom. Paul says this is where the power is because when a group of people act this way, when they prefer, when they counterculturally put the needs of others above their own needs, the watching world takes notice and they start to ask questions. Questions like, how come you're not like the other people that I know? What is this joy that you have? How can you sacrifice so much? And eventually they say, who is this Jesus you've been talking about again? You know, I went to Indonesia last year, and that country's been hit recently with just a string of natural disasters. And somebody heard that I was a Christian, which is very rare in the remote part that I was. And this is a guy where his village was hit by the tsunami of 2004. This is 14 years later. And he came up to me and said, hey, you're a Christian, I gotta ask you a question. Only you Christians are still helping in my village. The government has left, the mosques have left. Only you Christians are there, why? Why do you Christians stay? Why do you give so much? That's what this sort of preferring is capable of. And this is usually where, if I was a good pastor, I would say, guys, we really need to step up and start doing this. Usually I end my sermons with, wouldn't it be amazing if we were a church that embodied this sort of preferring others? But as I was praying through this text and praying over this sermon throughout the week, if I can be honest with you, I don't think I need to do that here this weekend. I don't think I need to stand before you guys and guilt you, and that hurts the Baptist inside of me, okay? Believe me, but, <laughs> but there's a reason, because I see this happening all around me every single day at this church. I personally see these verses lived out. Last weekend at Raleigh, this is just a small way, but a lady pulled me aside and said that she was in line for a raised gift card. And uh, a guy in front of her got the last two. And the guy paid for the raised gift card and turned around and just handed her one. And I'm like, that, that's preferring. I counseled a guy on Monday that's in a really, really tough marriage situation with his wife. Where honestly, if I were him, I'd be looking for a way out. And he has biblical grounds for that. And so I didn't know what to expect. When I was talking with him, I thought he'd say, all right, I've given enough. I've served enough. I've loved her enough. This is all that I can do. How can I get out? biblically, but instead he sat me down and he said, I need to know how to serve her more. I need to know how to love her better. We have 250 people that are willing to leave this nice permanent church facility where honestly they could just stay and take advantage of all the ministries here, but instead they want more people to hear the gospel so they're willing to get up early and to set up in Garner Magnet High School and to stay late in the afternoon to tear down. You saw the video before this sermon a few weeks ago. Mike asked you guys to give above and beyond your normal giving. And the goal was to raise $400,000. And as a part of the staff, our goal was like to scrape that by like July. And then hopefully by December to have $650,000 to close out the year with. But in just a few weeks, we're at $620,000. And someone handed me most of the rest before this service. That's preference. You know, I was talking with Jason Gore, our campus, uh, not our campus pastor, sorry, our executive pastor, uh, a few weeks ago. And um, 
you know, I, I'm coming back into hope from the outside. I've been gone for five years in Asheville planning a church, and, and I've worked with a lot of churches. I partnered with a lot of churches. I started my own. I've preached at a lot of churches, and I'm just coming back in this thing. And I just said, Jason, I don't know if, if you've just been here and you don't notice this, but there, since I've been back, there's been a dozen times where I've been in conversations or in the midst of a service here, and my jaw just drops open in awe at the power of God in this place. And I said, Jason, you may not notice this, but I firmly believe a small percentage of churches in any given generation experiences the move and the presence and the power of God that I've experienced since coming back here. You know, we have this crazy goal, and if you weren't at Vision Light, you might not know this, but we have this crazy goal of starting seven new campuses in seven years in the most growing and thriving communities in the Triangle. And that sounds a little shocking, which probably means it's the right size goal, uh, but as, after what I've seen God do here just the past few months, I think he's looking down at us saying, seven, that's cute. <laughs> I can do more than that, right? And it's because I see you guys living this out. Let me read you an email I got. It's from a woman named Denise who's here in this service actually. Um, but I received this a few months ago and um, I have other emails just like this. But this is what I see at this church all the time. She writes this, I grew up Catholic and I attended CCD religious instruction, but I never felt like I had a real relationship with God or a commitment to his teachings. I attended several different churches and even became a Mormon on my quest to find God. I continued to search for a church and finally the parents of one of my students told me about hope. It sounded like what I was looking for and so I started attending. And so I would attend on an inconsistent basis at first, but then started attending regularly. I was a get-your-worship-on-Sunday kind of believer and then lived life as I wanted the rest of the time. So I moved into my house in January of 2010, and shortly thereafter, Kelly and Brian moved in next door. And they found out that I attended Hope and invited me to visit their small group held at their house. And I always had a good excuse as to why I couldn't attend. I was a single mom. My daughter played competitive soccer, which didn't leave me a lot of free time. I put them off for over a year until one evening, as the members of their small group were arriving, I was mowing my yard and it was the first mow of the season, and my yard was a wreck. Grass was everywhere. And I'll never forget, on my second pass over the overly tall grass, I looked up to see a man jump off of Kelly and Brian's porch and walk into my yard towards me. I turned off the mower, and he asked me if I was Denise. I said yes, and he said I needed to come to small group tonight. And so I waved my arm around and said, look at my yard. I don't think I can go tonight. My HOA is gonna send me a nasty gram if I don't get all this grass cleaned up. He said, don't worry about that, and that I needed to come in. He was rather persistent, I didn't want to be mean, so I followed. So when I walked into their house, I excused my appearance. I had grass everywhere, and I told them I couldn't stay because I needed to finish my yard. Everyone was very welcoming and wanted to know about me. I didn't see the man that brought me over to their house sneak out. Little did I know that he was at my house finishing up mowing, blowing off my driveway and sidewalk, and putting away my equipment. I don't even notice, didn't even notice when he came back into Brian and Kelly's house because I was chatting with everyone. I agreed to come back the following week and would make a concerted effort to start going to small group. After about 45 minutes, I excused myself and said I needed to get back home and finish my yard work, and I cannot tell you how surprised and humbled I was when I walked across the yard to see my yard looking like a professional had just finished mowing it. And everything was clean and put up. And it was at that moment that something changed in me. A complete stranger came over and helped me so that I could get what I really needed. A small group to help me on my journey with the Lord. And that was the point of no return, where my life changed forever. My walk with God continued to grow the more I learned about him. 
as a single mom with little to no family, I finally felt like I had a group of people that would walk with me on this journey called life. And that was over seven years ago. And I now host the small group at my house. It's been an incredible journey and I'll forever be grateful to Craig for coming over and making me go to small group that night. It changed and it saved my life. People that knew me before my small group have watched me grow in my spiritual journey and they see how it's impacted my life. And they say to me regularly that I am not the same person that I was. I have more emails just like that. And so I know it's a weird way of ending a sermon. I know. But if you read some of Paul's letters, it's not just all calling people out or guilt. We think, okay, the Bible, it's all guilting people. It's not. Sometimes he just takes time to encourage a church. Say, I see what you're doing. It encourages me. Stick with it. Stay the course. Finish the race. And I think that's appropriate here. So it's an honor to serve at a place like this. And I truly believe we're actually gonna, with partnership in other churches, reach the triangle and change the world. And that's what Mike's gonna talk about next week, how we plan on doing that. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your words. I thank you that it's given in love and that it's true. Thank you for looking down on us from heaven in our needy and wanty state and paying the ultimate price to bring us back to you. Father, I pray for those in this room tonight that are still on that search, that haven't found you and found their needs met in you. Would you meet their needs tonight? Would they start that relationship tonight? Father, I thank you for bringing me back to such an amazing congregation that truly has this culture of preferring others. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to learn from them to see the example of Christ that they show me. And I just look forward to being blown away by what you're gonna do in the coming months and the coming years. And it's in the beautiful name of Jesus we pray.